Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we've been going through uh, what, what the Bible refers to as the Beatitudes. And let me, um, let's set the scene a, a little bit, just to make sure we're, uh, we're following along at the home game. So we have Jesus, he's up on a, a mountain. I don't think, you know, giant mountain. He's not, you know, uh, climbing with the, with the boots and the gear and stuff, right? It's probably a, a small hill, um, of what we would think of it as. Um, he's climbed up there, the disciples have followed him. He is speaking with the disciples, and there are crowds below that I think we, we are privy to later on, that we know that they are at least hearing some of what Jesus is saying. That's the, that's the basic context of the Beatitudes and when Jesus is speaking. But there's a, a broader context, a broader environment that Jesus is speaking within. And I want to look at that real quick because I think it puts into a slightly different perspective when we call about peacemakers, when Jesus is talking about peacemakers. And so I want you to keep an ear out for ways in there might be conflict between what peace is in the kingdom of Jesus and the peace of Rome and how Rome might react to those differences that Jesus is talking about. So when we think of peace in Rome, uh, a lot of times we think of what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This is a period of time in Roman history where there was over 200 years of Roman peace. This is sometimes called the Pax Augusta, or the peace of Augustus or Augustine. Um, he was the Caesar or the ruler at the time that this, um, this banner, this heading um, was kind of put into play, or this thought process of how Rome would pursue peace. You've probably met uh, Augustus uh, if you've seen the, uh, the Night at the Museum movies. He's Octavian, the little guy that associates with the cowboy. Okay, that's our man. That's Augustus. Um, Augustus accepted, uh, begrudgingly accepted the title Son of God following the death of his adopted father, Julius Caesar. Um, it, it will become commonplace for rulers of Rome to accept the title as God, ruling as they are alive as a living God. He was a little bit more politically adept than that. People tend to react negatively when you claim to be God. So he begrudgingly took the Son of God uh, as a moniker. Most historians date the Pax Romana during the time of Jesus, starting around 26 BC and extending through the early 3rd century. The name, though, is far more a product of propaganda than reality. See, the peace of Rome was a promise to those who have been conquered by Rome and an assurance for those in the upper classes of Rome of the benefits of supporting Roman sovereignty. Rome was constantly conquering other nations, bringing in other people. They also might refer to it as pax et securitas, peace and security. These are the benefits of Roman sovereignty, of Rome acting the way that they do, of dominating other people. And acceptance of this peace of Rome was difficult. It took some persuading for both the common folk and the, uh, the upper class, the aristocracy, because much of their honor was caught up in the conquest. See, expanding their empire, these subjects became an economic, economic benefit, right? They get more money, they get more goods, their economic reach was extended every time they conquered other nations. And giving that up for peace was a difficult propaganda item. And so the Pax Romana was accomplished through a series of very adept propaganda moves by Caesar Augustus, including the printing of coins, the celebration of this peace, um, the, the production of, of literature, and ceremonies that closed the gates of Janus. Janus was, a, um, it was like a temple there. And when it was a time uh, of peace, the gates were closed. And when there was a time of war, the gates were opened. And so uh, Augustus, on multiple times, ceremonially shut the gates to celebrate the peace, the peace of Rome. But the truth was, the Romans had given up their freedom for a false peace. 
The peace of Rome was maintained through violence, suppression of outside voices, and, and commandeered by powerful men who pursued their own ends with the resources of the empire. According to the Roman historian, historian Tacitus, it was a dreadful peace. Pox et securitas. Paul mocked this a little in a letter to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, he said, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So, so Jesus is interacting in this world where this, this peace of Rome is going on, is propagating. And so we need to kind of understand the impact of the Pax Romana on Jesus' world. And I'll give you two quick examples. The first one is, think of Pontius Pilate's decision to continue with the crucifixion of Jesus. He was being pressed on by the Jews to do this thing. His responsibility in the Roman world was to keep peace. If he does not keep peace, Rome will come in and keep it for him. And he will pay the price for that. And so he's facing a, a riotous crowd who wants Jesus crucified and he can find no fault in him. If he lets him go, though... He risks the disturbance of the peace and the heavy hand of Rome to pull his authority and keep it for him. That's the pressure of the peace of Rome. It says, even though I find no fault in this man, I will not risk unrest in this manner and let him live. So we see that reaction from Pontius Pilate. Uh, also, th- this, we see this pop up in the story of John the Baptist. And this is Matthew 14. This is the death of John the Baptist. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Same risk. How will the people react if I kill John? But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought uh, on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So that's interesting, right? Because we kind of expected that to end the same way. But he caves, but he caves for a different reason. See, he proposed that he would give someone up to half his kingdom. And it would be extremely dishonorable to him if he were to not fulfill that promise. And so he had to weigh, do I risk the shame that comes with not fulfilling my promise to my party guests to, com- to complete what I said I would complete? Or do I risk the violence of beheading John the Baptist and how these people might react? Interesting in this instance, he chose honor knowing that violence may come and then there might be a consequence from Rome for his behavior. So this is the world that surrounds Jesus as he speaks to his disciples. So listen, listen to what he says again then with all that in mind. Blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called sons of God. Remember how Rome keeps peace through the sword at the direction of the emperor who is an authority to himself in who there is no meekness, no humility, who needs not hunger and thirst for righteousness, whose peace is maintained without mercy. The Emperor Nero said, "Without listen how he talks about his control of peace. Without my favor and grace, no part of the whole world can prosper. All those many swords 
th- excuse me, thousands of swords, which my peace restrains, will be drawn at my nod. What nation shall be utterly destroyed? That is mine to decree. That's Rome's perspective on peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. See, this, these beatitudes, this opening salvo on the Sermon on the Mount, a description of how the kingdom of Jesus works and what his citizens act like is a direct indictment of the Roman Empire and their peace. The peacemakers in Jesus' kingdom shall be called sons of God. Don't miss that. Remember our man Augustus, the, the son of God? Jesus is saying, you have it wrong. This is not true peace. How Rome knows peace is no peace at all. And a real son of God will make and keep peace in a true way. Don't ever accuse Jesus of not being subversive. He's interacting with an empire, even as he speaks here to us today. So what is peace in the kingdom of God? Peace is a great theme of the Bible. I mean, the word peace comes up over 400 times. And when the world is created, there is peace. That's the nature of our creation. There's peace between man and God. There's peace between man and himself. There's peace between man and his wife. There's peace between man and creation. And then the peace is tainted by sin and rebellion. And God creates covenants between himself and man to reestablish peace and to start setting the wrongs right. And man has continued to break them. And then Jesus comes, the prince of peace and he comes to make the final reconciliation to provide a true and final way to eternal and all-encompassing peace to be enjoyed in relationship with him now even in a world that rejects his peace and then forever upon his return where creation is restored to the state of peace that it was created in but look around we have no peace we're missing peace in our world relationships peace in the world is generally defined as a break in the action. The single day when everyone stops to reload, to replan, so they may go back out again. As of August of this year, there were only 11 countries in the world that were free from conflict. 11. And Brazil is threatening the list. We have United Nations, we have peace treaties, we have you know, uh, aid workers, pacifist governments. No one seems to have this idea of peace nailed. We're missing peace in our personal relationships. Our relationships are fragile. And often our desire for peace is personal. And if our relationships don't honor our personal peace, we'll let them blow up. This happens with our marriages, with our friendships, even between parents and children. Peace is very fragile in our relationships. We're even missing peace with ourselves. We are a people that are completely unhappy with ourselves. We're conflicted internally with just about everything about who we are. We don't like our personalities. We don't like the way we look. We don't like the way that we interact with other people. Our eternal conflicts, our insecurities then get projected back on other people or totally digested on ourselves and it leads to some very dark places, some serious points of desperation. And we're missing, missing peace with God. And to be honest, that's the root of all of those. So how do we do this? How do we get peace? So I think we can answer this by understanding what peace is. is. But putting a tangible definition on peace is sometimes kind of a, kind of a tricky wick. So, I, so let's start with something I think we can generally agree on, which is one of the characteristics of peace would seem to be an absence of conflict. Okay? We, we want fighting to stop. 
We want peace and, and generally accompanied with quiet. But if we're being honest, we're generally more concerned about the quiet than the peace. And then we mistake the two. See, I don't know if you've seen a, a boxing match, right? But they, they, they box for, three, round, for uh, three minutes and then there's a one minute break. Do you look at that one minute break when they're in their corners and say, that's peace? I don't seem right. Or I don't know if you guys had the experience of, of, of having your, if you have kids and your kids are fighting and they won't stop kind of pecking at each other. And so you separate them out and you say, you go into this room and you go into this room. And that might be quiet, but it's not peace. There's an app. Uh, I don't know if you have an iOS, like an Apple device. There's an app um, that you can get where a, a warning goes off every time a rocket is fired into Israel. Do not download that app. <laughs> Do not. <laughs> that will be going off all the time. And there might be a few days maybe a few hours where it doesn't go off that's quiet but I'm not sure that the absence of conflict there could legitimately be called peace the conflict still exists you see the, the bell rings and round two begins and the men come out and the doors will eventually open and your children have plotted against each other for 30 minutes and come up with creative ways to attack once the doors come off and the rocket will inevitably find its way into Israel see it's just a matter of time there has to be more to peace than a simple absence of conflict. So, so biblically, maybe let's try to understand some attributes of peace and see if we can get a more robust definition. First, I think we need to understand that there is no peace without God. First King says, But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord evermore. In a letter to uh, the church at Ephesus, a man named Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. The word peace means to join, to bring together. It is Christ who does that. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. In 2 Thessalonians, peace is a gift from God. If you seek peace, you must seek it in him. I want you to hear this in the way I say it. <laughs> Let me put it that way. We are a society that seeks peace from a lot of different places. There's a lot of books to help you find peace. There's a lot of men and women that you can go to that have nice degrees that can talk to you about your life and try to help you find peace. And I'm not saying there's not value in some of those books and I'm not saying there's not value with what those folks are saying. But if you are seeking peace, it comes from God. It is rooted in God. So when you are looking for something, make sure you are trying to find that thing in the right place, in the place where it actually comes from. Okay? True peace comes from God. But how does peace work? Well, peace from God conquers problems. It conquers problems. See, the peace of the Bible is not peace at any price. It doesn't just gloss over things for the sake of quiet. Stopping conflict, ceasing fighting, that is truce. It is not peace. Peace actually conquers problems. It brings to join, to brings parties together. The truth is known. The issue is settled and two parties reconcile in its aftermath. That's peace. James says, uh, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom is first pure, then peaceable. The wisdom from God makes its way to peace through purity, dealing in truth with the matter. See, I, I was struggling this week because I'm, I'm flat up against two, two scriptures. Okay? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Blessed are the peacemakers. I have not come to bring peace. That's been, I don't know, that's been fighting me all week, to be honest with you. But I think if we understand true peace, these things aren't at war with each other. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, Jesus isn't leaning on a broadsword, okay? He's not standing there waiting for violence. His sword is truth. And the fact is truth divides people. But to really bring peace, to conquer problems, you have to deal with the matter as it sits. And that means bringing truth with Christ. He brings truth so that real peace can be obtained. And sometimes it creates conflict. And sometimes it creates strife and struggle and pain and anguish. But those things must be gone through sometimes to really get peace. So you've not made peace between two people unless they have seen the sin and the error and the wrongness of the bitterness and the hatred and they have resolved to bring it before God and make it right. And then through purity comes peace. Peace conquers problems. It doesn't hide them. It doesn't cover them up. Maybe you have relationships like that in your life. We haven't seen a guy in 10 years and we call that peace. Or maybe you have a functional marriage where you don't really talk, but you fulfill the obligation society expects, but there is no, that's not peace in your house. That's the truth, but that's not peace. Peace conquers problems. It brings things to bear. It allows truth to be dealt with. That's peace. Peace is accomplished through righteousness. There is an undeniable connection between righteousness and peace in the Bible. Here's a few uh, to kind of chew on. Psalm 34, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 37, mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 85 and Isaiah 32, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. Faithfulness, obedience, righteousness, right living with God produces peace. See, a lot of times we don't like this. The solution to our problems, to our lack of peace, is to pursue righteousness. To do things we should do. And then it will produce what we want it to produce. The reason we don't like that is because it puts the onus back on us. We want the quick answer, the, the easy solution. You want peace in your marriage? Handle things the way God tells you to. Take responsibility for your sin. Deal with it in truth. Pursue God and His righteousness with your whole life. That's your best chance for peace. Fellas, I'll tell you this. Every major, I don't know, probably not major is not the right way to put it. But like, I can think of the majority of conflicts. Lack of peace in my marriage has generally been born by me. And generally has to do with my unrighteousness. Maybe I'm pursuing my ends instead of the ends of my family. I'm not honoring my wife. And that produces a lack of peace in my house. Maybe I'm not, I'm not open with what I have going on. Maybe there's sin in my life that has nothing to do with my marriage. But it causes me to be pretty irritable because I'm hiding. 
It's not something I'm dealing with openly. I'm keeping it for my spouse. That was the, the root of the things that have gone on in my marriage for 10 years. And I have a great marriage. But I can tell you a lot of it rests on me. And it rests on me not bringing things to light and not dealing things in righteousness. Ladies, that same thing happened to you. You hide things. You don't tell things to your husband. Or you talk about him. You dishonor him in front of other women. And then, of course, you're not telling him that. You are not pursuing righteousness in our own lives produces a lack of peace in our relationships. Okay? It puts the onus back on us, and that really stinks, but that's the truth of it. There's an undeniable link in the Bible between righteousness and peace. And if we are not pursuing righteousness, we should not be surprised when there is no peace in our lives, in all of our relationships. You want peace in your house? Pursue righteousness. You want peace with your children? Handle things the way God tells you to. Now, the truth is, is like all these circumstances, these other relationships, there's somebody else on the other side. I cannot promise peace because you're dealing with another party that may not want it or that may not want to have the truth come to bear or do not, does not want to pursue righteousness because it's not worth it for that relationship to them. I cannot guarantee peace, but you want the best opportunity for peace in your life? It's a pursuit of righteousness. It's not easy, but it is simple. It's simple to understand. It's just hard to do. See, sin is what caused God's initial peace to be disrupted. And is what continues to disrupt our relationships now. We want easy answers, a magic trick, some book, some new way of thinking to give us peace. But see, it's God's to give. And He is telling you clearly that you are hindering it with your unrighteousness. And stop, stop blaming the other party. Okay, take the plank out of your eye. <laughs> but, 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 but he, but he, but he, but she, but she, but they, but they. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. But if you want peace, you need to deal in truth. Conquer problems, not cover them up. Know that it comes from God and understand that unrighteousness hinders all of that. Peace is rooted in love. We need to be careful not to miss this. The very nature of peace is rooted in love, the desire to commune, to join together. See, sometimes we get caught in the truth part of peace. We get really good at calling the balls and strikes alive. Identifying a truth without the intent of making peace. You see, shouting truth into a crowded group does not make or bring peace. Slapping truth on your Facebook page or on your picket sign doesn't bring peace. See, God could have just as easily shouted our condemnation from the heavens so that we knew it was coming and then slammed the door of eternity shut on our faces for our lack of obedience. The truth would have been spoken... See, but he didn't. He wanted peace between his creation and himself. And he came as peace in love to show us what that meant, what it looks like. See, the news is full of people who are arrogant, wrong-headed, misguided, manipulative, foolish, or just plain wrong. And so is your life. So are the people you know. But see, the thing is, you're generally not put in the position to have to make peace with people you agree with. Just like it's no credit to you to love those that love you, it's no credit to you to make peace with those that you're already at peace with. The guy that you think is a political jack and apes and whose values and way of speaking and frankly hairstyle burn you to the core, that's the guy you're called to make peace with. That's the guy. We can make peace with the, our neighbor who we had a minor tiff with over how much sugar he borrowed. Okay? We made peace. There's a grander peace available, a much larger peace. 
And that's ours to make. See, that's the other thing. Peace is active. And that's how we should understand blessed are the peacemakers. He's not just saying understand peace. Accept peace. Think peace is a really good idea. Blessed are the peacemakers. We seek peace. We make it. John MacArthur said this about peacemakers. He said, so biblical peacemakers are not quiet, easygoing people who just want to make no waves and no issues, who lack justice, who lack a sense of righteousness, who are compromisers, who are appeasers. No. People say, oh, he's such a peacemaker. And they mean by that that he has no convictions. That's not the issue. A true biblical peacemaker will not let sleeping dogs lie. He will not save the status quo if truth must be brought to bear on the issue. He doesn't say, well, you know, I, I know the person's doing wrong, but oh, I would just rather have a peaceful situation. Don't want to say anything about what my son is doing or what my husband is doing or what our friends are doing. I just want to keep peace. That's a cop-out. True peace only comes after the truth. So the meaning of peace, it is real peace. It's not just peace at any price. It's not to keep up the status quo. It's not calling a halt to the shooting while we reload. It's not simply a truce. It is not reducing it to a cold war. It is resolving it by the truth, bringing to bear the righteousness of God in love. So this past Christmas morning, I found myself hiding in the bathroom. My, my wife and, and my oldest daughter were fighting. Not fisticuffs, but it was a verbal assault. And there was a, there was a matter of a Christmas dress that was to be worn or not to be worn. And that went on for quite a while, and uh, I hid in the bathroom. And uh, as, as I'm prone to do during the week, especially if I feel like, you know, God has laid on, uh, on uh, a responsibility for me to, to speak about His Word on Sunday, and so I try throughout the week to have it running through my head, and so I'm sitting in the bathroom, hiding from my wife and young daughter. <laughs> and and it, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And, and I think as I'm sitting there that this is not my business. <laughs> I don't want to get in the middle of that discussion about this Christmas dress. And then I thought, um, that's a good way for nothing ever to, to get solved. And peace never to be made is that good people stand idly by and say, this is not my business. Somebody else's lack of peace is not my problem. But the thing is, I'm connected to these two ladies. And to be honest, there's probably a selfish part of this that says their lack of peace ends up being my lack of peace. That's probably true. But really at the moment, what I thought was, is like, my wife is trying to prepare a, a meal to take to our, her grandma's house, and she's in a very harried state, and she did an excellent job with Christmas for the kids and breakfast that morning, and, and she's frustrated. And my oldest daughter, who for reasons I can't quite comprehend, is also frustrated and refusing to wear a Christmas dress on Christmas that we bought for that purpose. <laughs> and so I thought, well... This is a frustrating situation. Perhaps, perhaps dad is capable of making peace. And I'd like to think that I did. My method of peace is generally to wear you down. Like we're just going to talk for a while. <laughs> and then eventually you give up and concede to dad. I'm not sure that's true peace. I'm still working through that one. <laughs> um, but that was my attempt. That was my attempt. And so uh, it occurred to me that when we're talking about making peace is that it is, it is actionable. It's very tough to be a peacemaker hiding in your bathroom. And the truth is, beyond that, like, we're not short on opportunities in our world to make peace. To, to bring to bear the truth and righteousness of God. You see, if you've been catching the news lately, there are some tense situations out there. But the truth is, is when there's trouble, Christians run in. 
when everyone else runs out. Okay? In the Roman times, when, when they didn't care so much for babies, if it was a baby that they didn't want to keep, they would just set it out in the gutter and, the, and they would die out there. And maybe the dogs or the animals would get it, whatever. Okay? Who picked up those babies out of the gutter? When trouble was going, who came in? Christians. They picked up the babies and they raised them as their own. Okay? When there were, there were people dying of the plague, it was the Christians where the body would be left in the middle of the street because no one would want to go near it to help them. It was a Christian that would die in his stead to go help that man. When there's trouble, everyone else is running out, Christians run in. And even, even in modern times, there's, maybe there's racial tensions. There's a lot of that. And see, it's easy for us to step back and say, these are not my issues. This is not my peace to make. This is not my thing to be a part of. And, and we get real good, especially in situations like that, on calling the balls and strikes. That was wrong. There's no, that wasn't the right way to handle it. There's no righteousness in that situation. But the question is, is like, do we actually have a desire to make peace? Can we look at a family that is mourning the death of their son and say, I wish that there were peace in their life. Can we genuinely desire that, even if the circumstances in which that person died were brought on by themselves? Can we still desire to make peace in there? Can we have a desire to have mercy and love and say truth should be brought to bear but we should do it in love with people that are flat out wrong? You see, God had to make that reconciliation with some very undesirable people. People that rejected His love, that rejected His truth. And He still, he still comes and says, these are sons of God I want to make peace with them and so as we look out on the world and say blessed are the peacemakers I, I, I want to walk away with a couple things the first one is, is to make sure that we know that it is an active peace it isn't just to broker deals with wherever who you're sitting next to I think we have a responsibility that peace be broader than that and that brings the truth to bear and that part of that truth is the glorious mercy of Jesus but we are peacemakers that's our responsibility and be careful that we don't start calling the balls and strikes alive. Focusing more on what is true and ignoring the fact that we're to pursue that truth in love. And that if we don't have a heart for those that we disagree with, which is the very nature, the very type of people you need to make peace with, you will never make peace. And so however much disdain you have somebody, however much anger you have, or you think how wrong they are, how misguided they are, how rooted in evil you believe that they're thinking, that is where the opportunity of peace exists. That is where Jesus shines the brightest in that darkness. And it's us who are to care of that to the world to continue to help setting the wrongs right by bringing peace. Let's pray.